Hey guys, this is Scotty jumping in real quick. So, just wanted to let you know we did have another weird mic issue this week. Uh, this time it's on my audio. I thought it was my fan, but when I listened to it, it's clearly not that. So, anyway, I'm not sure what happened, but we will try to get that fixed for next week. So, thanks. Bye. Stranger stories every day Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring So listen friends, we'll blow your mind With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing Hey I hate that Yeah <laughs> That makes it sound like I just said that I, I, I hate Scotty's greeting But Zoom has started doing this thing where it, like It audibly lets you know that a meeting is being recorded Yeah and it just creeps me out. Yeah, I, I'm I'm to the point where I'm like, computer stuff, stop trying to help me. Yeah. Like, I was watching uh, an episode of Friends earlier, and for some reason, HBO Max was, like, just insisting on doing the audio plus narration thing. Oh, no. So, it's just, like, it would be, like, it was, like, Monica stands behind the diner wearing fake boobs. And then yep. it's, like, it's Monica squeezes her boob. I'm like, I, I know. I can I get it. it. We get it. We get it. That's like, hilarious because you said that you were, like, you were watching episodes of Friends again. So I started watching Friends again. And I'm currently on the episode where Monica is working at the 50s diner. It's like her, yeah. like, they just finished when she's doing YMCA. Yeah, I've been I've been bouncing around, but fantastic. It's, it's, it's crazy the rabbit hole you can fall down with that show, which by the way isn't all that good. Like let's just like it's pretty mediocre. Like I'm I'm yeah. I'm like it's not it's not terrible, but I mean, it's, it's not better the best than all of ever. those other like 90s single folks in the city kind of sitcoms, you know. Jesus. Um, I hold on. We were talking we were talking about oh sh- it's gone. The, I don't know what is <laughs> happening to me, but the hamster just keeps just just well, healing over. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Um Which, hi everybody. I'm hi. Amelia Ferro. <laughs> I'm Scotty Milder. This is the and weirdest we are thing. your hosts. Yep, of the weirdest thing podcast. We I just didn't want us to go for too long yeah. before <laughs> we introduced ourselves. But we were hold on. We were talking about friends. You were saying that. Oh, this is what I was gonna say. You were like, it's not really that good. And I was saying, yeah, it's pretty like it's it's fairly mediocre. But like even just looking at it, it's so clear that it was such a phenomenon because by the second season, they're already having guest stars like John oh, yeah. Dam and Julia Roberts. And like, man, that show blew yeah. up. It's it's easy to forget. Like, I guess it came out in 94, so I would have been a junior mm. in high school. Mm. And I don't even think I really started watching it then. I think I started watching when I went off to college. So that would have been a couple years later. And it was just like, you know, stoned in my dorm room like on PBS or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then I kind of got hooked on it but it's it's weird to think back that and Seinfeld were two shows that just like just hit like a bomb yeah Um, like Um, everything before that it feels like it's like everyone says Nirvana came in and completely changed music like mm -hmm. it feels like everything before Friends and Seinfeld was just like family ties and growing pains and step by step and things like that and then real family oriented yeah and all of a sudden here's these shows about young people in new Mm -hmm. york and like all Mm -hmm. sorts of sexual innuendos and like like it feels like even now watching it like i said it's not a great show and it is definitely of its time 
100 um, percent but even now i'm like i'm surprised by how edgy it is in some ways just in terms of like like some of the subject matter of the jokes i'm like i don't know if you could get away with that now in like a bad way or a good way not necessarily in a bad way i mean some of the like everyone's talked about the like uh the gay panic on the show and that yes. does get pretty obnoxious yeah but it's it's like we were talking the other night when i was at your house like weird like a disturbing amount of incest jokes and like like yeah and and like the level this of- is true yes this is true i forgot about this part yes yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot there's a lot going on there yeah it, it's it's just it's a weird because the tone of it it's like oh they didn't know like they didn't like they knew they were like being naughty but it's like i don't know maybe it's just 2021 sensibility where i'm like this is a weird show yeah <laughs> like rewatching it's a real weird experience yeah it really is it's i mean really it's still weird. funny and like i definitely have fallen down the rabbit hole but it is it definitely just feels like i opened up a time capsule and i'm staring into the past yeah another show fittingly enough with our with our theme for this week another show just uh had its series finale this last weekend uh, a show called pose on mm-hmm. fx it has to be fx yeah um, FX. yeah and the series kind of ends uh started in the started in the mid late 80s mm-hmm. and ends the series ends in like the late 90s and they make a reference to sex in the city mm-hmm. uh and and you know if you don't know the show pose it's about the ball culture scene in new york and deals primarily with a group of trans women of color mm-hmm. uh, which is super cool just for representation and 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 the you know like it boasted the largest cast of trans actors uh, I think like ever. So v- super cool. I completely fell in love with the show, but it's very funny to see these like four women of color talking <laughs> about <laughs> sex in the city. And they're like, what fucking city are they in? Because like those, those yeah. chicks are so white and like, they don't even have any like black or Latino friends. Like, yeah. you know, one of them goes like, not even like the sidekicks. Yeah. Yeah. It was of yeah. it, like, that's that's another show to watch and go back at that one's a trip yeah and- I, that, that's one i've been wanting to go back and rewatch. i haven't i don't think i've seen it since it was actually on tv and i never saw I the movies or anything i stand by my claim that carrie bradshaw is the absolute worst like yeah the worst i mean my memory of that show is that she was she's terrible she's terrible like i don't know why her friends are friends with her she (laughs) makes like terrible decision after terrible decision and then is like support me and help me and be here for me and i know that you're going through like like any manner of various huge life events but like this guy didn't text me back and it's like yeah because of the because you bug carrie you bug because this is how you are (laughs) well that's oh my god i mean that's that's interesting because that's kind of how friends is too and that's definitely how Seinfeld was that's that weird 90s like post Cold War pre 9-11 like everyone just had our heads up our ass like yeah yeah. it's just all so like really truly there were so many times watching and I feel that way we like a mutual friend of ours jokes because she's like do you like any main characters in anything I'm like a lot of time main characters are the worst yeah that's very true you know what I mean like Carrie is awful in Sex in the City Buffy I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a 
fucking pill. Like she, again, made the worst decisions, was always like, I know best because I'm the slayer. Everybody get out of my way. And then people would die. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the other one? Harry Potter. Harry Potter's a dick. <laughs> like there was so much times that I'm like, J- can you just hit him with like a one of the freezing spells and just put him in his trunk and like just let Hermione and, and you know, Neville go off and, and fix everything? Because that's what's going to happen anyways. It's funny. Like, I mean, we're totally off <laughs> the subject of what mm-hmm. we're actually going to talk about today but Mm -hmm. no it's funny thinking about that because like that was an era where like all the main characters were dicks but we weren't supposed to think they were dicks Mm -hmm. but it sort of seems like it kind of set the table for like the rise of peak tv and like the the tv anti-hero where it's like oh walter white like we know he's an evil bastard don draper don draper tony soprano like yeah but But like the shows are actually kind of self-aware about it yes and in that case like i'm so i think that's my issue with it is that and unfortunately all the examples that we're thinking of are dudes i'm trying to think if there's a good female example but that's the thing is that the show is like very clearly being like, you are not supposed to want to be like this person. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. this guy is terrible. His life is falling apart and it's all because of his own doing. And maybe and- he's murdering people depending yeah on <laughs> yeah dexter dexter was kind of another yeah. one whereas stuff like sex in the city it was like oh well why can't carrie get her life together why mm-hmm. can't she catch a break and i'm like she's a thin white woman who somehow like just manages to flit along living this incredible life in new york city herself. yeah like i don't feel bad for this bitch <laughs> like <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's um, um back Harry then. Potter is not quite that bad. But no, like, I mean, Harry's was, the worst. I mean, at least Harry Potter was an orphan, you know. But yes, yeah, you know, like, like I get it. Nobody ever taught him how to behave. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, he's living under fucking stairs for you know the first half of his life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like back to back to Friends. It's like watching that show. It, it's the same thing where it's just like these people all hate each other. Like, why are they friends? And like, man, like I remember the height of the Ross and Rachel. Are they going to, are they going to not? And then watching it now, it's like, oh my God, this is like the most toxic, codependent bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, I will say for friends, there are plenty of times when they all, like they show up for each other. And I I guess. And I think Friends is a little bit different because there wasn't one clear-cut star of Friends. That's true. Whereas Carrie literally like sits there and is like, oh, this like I had this bad date. And her friends are like, I have cancer. Yeah. (laughs) Can we not give a shit about who you're fucking right now? And she's like, oh man, I'm dating a rich Russian. And isn't that awful? Yeah, it's true. Like, there's a level of unsufferability with Carrie that, like, the worst moments on Friends don't even approach. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like her baseline on the show. I did. I remember super enjoying the show. Same. It's really funny. And I'm sure. Same. And like, I can watch, you know, like, Friends and be like, wow, this show is not that good and i still like i mean i've been watching it for two weeks straight and like can't kind of can't stop so it's like clearly still got its hooks in me i think the performers do a lot 
to like overcome some of the deficits in the show itself like yeah that's one thing watching friend it's like oh wow that's like six actors with just impeccable comic timing yeah all the way across and just the ability to go from like these heartfelt moments to total farce like just as a seeing what you can do in the sitcom format yeah in terms of a performance like that's impressive yeah but the writing and and just the kind of overall conception of the show i'm just like oh man yeah Yeah, i'm glad we've kind of outgrown this (laughs) yeah 100 percent. pause dog needs in yeah and you're i you sound a, a little muffled Oh, well, I'll talk about that in a second. Okay. <laughs> There's a reason. So anyway, yeah. So that's our uh, diatribe on friends and sex in the city. Yeah, um. <laughs> there we go. So before we uh, dive in, I do want to apologize. I've got a fan going. Um, I was going to turn it off before we started recording. But you know what? It's summertime in New Mexico. We record for two hours. And uh, like, if I don't have a fan on, I'm going to pass out. So Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's the muffled. That's what's. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so we're now in Pride Month. Yes. Happy so, Pride. Happy still. Pride, everybody. So we got a couple uh, Pride Dean stories for you guys. Yay. And I think I am starting. You are. So I was gonna do like go spooky this week, but then thought about it and I decided in honor of Pride, I'm actually going to talk about a literal God, like okay. an actual deity who has descended to earth to share his wisdom and his in the power of metal with all of us. Okay. Uh, so... <laughs> This is, of course, the story of Rob Halford, the metal icon and lead singer of Judas Priest. Give it. Let's do it. So. Okay, so my sources for this, Wikipedia, as always, an article from blabbermouth.net called Judas Priest's Rob Halford reflects on coming out as gay on MTV. It was very unplanned. <laughs> Rob Alford never wanted to leave Judas Priest in 1992. This is from metalinjection.net, March 24th, 2021. And then his autobiography, Confess, which came out last year. So uh, Robert John Arthur Halford was born August 25th, 1951 in Sutton Coldfield up in the Midlands, which is near Birmingham. Okay. Uh, that date just blows my mind because it's like, holy shit, like the dude's turning 70 this year. Wow. Yeah. And still rocking, right? Um, still rocking, yeah. yeah. Still, still out there fucking doing it. He grew up in a nearby town called Walsall. Uh, he he and his family lived in the Beechdale housing estate. So this is like working class public mm. housing, like what I think of the UK. I think they call council estates. Okay. His father. Any, any UK listeners can let us know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just like I think that's a, I'm just making shit up. But yep, yep. <laughs> so his father was an engineer in the steel factories. His mother was a homemaker, and he had a little sister. Susan, who's going to be important here in a little bit. Um, So this is from his autobiography. This is him just talking about where he grew up. He says, a 15-minute walk from Walsall Town Center and 10 miles north of Birmingham, the Beachdale was built gleaming new on industrial wasteland at the start of the 50s. For the first two decades of my life, it was my crucible. 
was the center of my world, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, my triumphs, and my setbacks. Then he goes on to say, the Beechdale sturdy red brick terraced and semi-detached houses were basic, as British council houses tend to be. But like a lot of the Bevan era dwellings, there was a kind of idealism behind them. They were bigger than the minimum size that was stipulated in government legislation and even had their own front and back gardens. Walsall Council doubtless envisaged these houses having pretty lawns and flower gardens, but it didn't work out like that. In the post-war years, rationing was still going on, so Beechdale families used their outside spaces to grow spuds and veg. Basically, you walked out of your front door onto an allotment. So he grew up very working class, but it sounds like in a very like loving, supportive family. He was very close to his parents. He was also very close to his paternal grandparents uh, okay. who lived nearby. His grandfather was a World War One vet. Um, mm. And in his autobiography, he kind of tells this story about how he found like this German helmet in one of his grandfather's trunk and like put it on him. was like running around the house being like, what is this grandpa? And his grandpa was like, take that off. Which is also like a literal scene from Mad Men. So tie-ins <laughs> are just firing on all cylinders Perfect. this week. <laughs> about his parents, he said, mom and dad were loving, protective parents. And never in a million years would I describe my childhood as abusive or unhappy. My mom was a very calm, steady person, just the sort of rock any kid needs. When we were together as a family, I hardly ever saw her lose a rag, except on the day we went to the wrestling. I was still very young, but I remember it like it was yesterday. We went to Walsall Town Hall and had good seats near to the ring. We sat down, the first bout started, and my mom absolutely lost it. One of the wrestlers pulled a sneaky move, and mom was out of her seat, on her feet, and yelling abuse at him. You can't do that, you dirty cheat. Ref, ref, disqualify him. She looked crazed. I had never seen her like this before. I was dumbfounded, and my dad was mortified. Sit down, woman, he hissed at mom. You're showing us up. His musical awakening kind of came when he was a student at Beachdale Junior. And I don't know what that means. I think that's like elementary school. Okay. But I'm not sure. So he was attending a music lesson. The teacher was choosing like who they were going to put in the school choir. So like mm -hmm. all the students had to get up and sing in front of the class. So when he got up to sing, I think they were all told they had to sing the song. It was called the Skyboat song. It was like an old Spanish lullaby. Okay. Um, he already knew the song. So he was just like, he was like, I'm going to go for it. So he really, quote, belted it out. Uh, the teacher stared at him stunned and then told him to sing it again. And he was like, uh, okay. But before he did, she turned to the class and said, quote, all of you now stop what you're doing. Be quiet. and Listen to Robert. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he sang it a second time. And then the class just like erupted in applause for him. And then the teacher was like, Rob, come with me. And he was like, okay. And so she took him to the class next door, stood him up in front of the class and told him to sing for a third time. <laughs> so he sang the song again. And then the second class applauded. Mm -hmm. um, so he said, I stood there, looked at them and soaked up the applause. I bloody loved it. I know every kid loves to be loved and craves attention. But for me, it was more than that. In that moment, for the first time, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. It felt wonderful. And I'm only half joking when I say I think of that day as the start of my career in show business. Hmm. Rob knew he was gay since he was 10 years old, he said. And he kind of said, like, in his autobiography, he's talking about, he's like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know, like, you know, I didn't know any gay people. I'd never really heard of gay people. But I knew I kind of preferred to be around the boys rather than hmm. the girls. I knew I was attracted to them. And then he got a crush on a fellow student. He kept it to himself, but this was kind of him realizing, oh, there's something maybe different about me. 
Mm-hmm. And he said that he he grew into what he said, what he called a, quote, confident boy and a normal Walsall lad. Now, okay, so a little bit of a content warning. I'm going to get into some sexual stuff, and I am going to touch on some issues of child abuse. I'm going to, like, stay away from some of the, the details, uh, okay. but this is all kind of comes from his autobiography. Okay. So he was a decent student, and they made him the school librarian, and he talked about how, like, this was around the time he discovered masturbation, or as he says over and over and over again in the book, he calls it having a wink. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. (laughs) So while he was working in the school library, there was this, like, plywood annex to the library. And he would, like, sneak off in there to, quote, have a wink. And then it was in that annex that he had some of his first sexual experiences with boys. Mm. Um, where they would... Worst? Did you say worst or first? First. first. Oh, shit. I was yeah. like, what happened in the plywood no, annex? Like, the way he okay. describes it is it was like, well, I mean, we were just sort of jerking each other off. And, like, okay. he, like, it's actually kind of interesting how he describes it. He says, this may sound funny to you. But me and my friends winking each other off wasn't a gay thing. We were just mates having a laugh and, well, giving each other a hand. My <laughs> friends were straight. <laughs> they went on to become dads, and I'm sure they're granddads by now. But that was them. I was a very different story. So he did get busted eventually. He and one of his friends were in there, you know, doing their thing. And a teacher poked their head in, and then, you know, they were like, oh, my God, hide, hide, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> And then after class, the teacher was like, Halford and whatever the other kid's name is, like, stay after class. And they were like, oh, shit. And so the teacher brought them up after all the other kids left. The teacher brought them up and then caned them three times each across the palms. Ooh. And then never said anything about it again. So this is like that era of like in British schools, like very known for like corporal punishment. Yeah. Like if anyone's ever watched the movie The Wall. Pink Floyd's The Wall. It's kind of mm. it's kind of that sort of thing. He knew he was gay, but he remained closeted and he actually even did date girls. It sounds like just kind of like trying to sort of keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. He also started his first job as a teenager where he washed cars in an auto lot. And then this is from the autobiography where he's kind of talking about his like style at the time. Mm-hmm. He says, like any teenager, I just wanted to be cool and trendy. I took to swanning around the Beachdale in suede loafers that got marked so easily that I was scared each time I wore them in case they got scuffed or if it rained. I had a corduroy green coat that I wore so much mom had to put patches on the elbows. I accessorized it with a cravat and baggy wide trousers. Thanks to Henry's, which is a menswear shop that he ended up working at, I'll mention in a moment. It says, thanks to Henry's, Walsall's one half decent boutique, I was quite the fashion plate. You can't wear that kind of clobber around the beach dale without exciting comment. And I remember walking home from Blockswitch Baths dance one night when I was about 15. I fancied some chips and stopped off at the hot dog van by the estate. I'd also taken the coming. I'm my sorry, hair. the hot dog van? Yeah, the hot dog van by the estate. I don't know. A British thing, maybe? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And then he says, oh, and just a little content warning here. Uh, I'm going to get into some Britishisms, homophobic language. Mm-hmm. But he said, I had also taken the coming my hair bouffant and forward like the small faces. And my ensemble grabbed the attention of a couple of yabos chomping down on hot dogs. Oi, mate. 
look how I'm dressed. You're poof. One of them greeted me and broadcast yam yam. Or what the fuck? None of this is real words. (laughs) Now you're just making sounds. (laughs) And then the guy said, what a meow, a bloke or a girl? I didn't answer them, but the question stayed with me and in a way haunted me. I knew by then that I was gay, but the yods saying that I looked like a woman made me worry. Is that what everybody thinks I look like? Is that part of who and what I am? Hmm. Um, so this is kind of a recurring theme through the book. He, it sounds like he really struggled for a long time to determine what being gay meant. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, this is in the 60s. He's a teenager. This is not a time where there were gay role models for mm-hmm. someone like him. Yeah. So there was a lot of just kind of self-doubt, I think, around his sexuality and around how to express it and just what it meant. Mm-hmm. So before he became a singer, uh, he worked at becoming an actor. He talks about how he was a big fan of like TV shows and was just like, I'd like to do that. That looks fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and his parents were supportive and even encouraged him to apply to the Birmingham School of Acting. And then his dad hooked him up with a friend who did community theater. This friend really kind of took a shine to him. And again, content warning, I'm going to talk a little bit about some child sexual abuse. Ooh, um, okay. So he ended up getting cast in a kitchen sink drama Uh, at this community theater, got good reviews from the local press, was like, oh, this is great. Yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. But this friend of his father's ended up taking him to meet some actors at a prestigious nearby theater. They all went out drinking at a pub afterwards. Rob, who did develop a drinking problem, he ended up getting sober in the 80s, Mm -hmm. um, got just shit-faced hammered, and this friend of his father's took advantage of So I'm not going to talk about what happened, Mm -hmm. but here's his reaction. He says, I did nothing. I have no idea how long it went on, but when it was done, dad's mate got up without a word and walked out of the room. I remembered I was near my nan's house, found my coat, let myself out and stumbled, panicking and disoriented into the night. I didn't know what to make of what had happened. I wasn't even sure what had happened. I lay in Nan's spare room feeling weird, then passed out. Next morning, my head throbbing with my first ever hangover, my thoughts were all over the place. Is that what gay men do? Is that what being gay is? Is that what theater people do? Had I been on a casting couch? Now, of course, I know that the guy was a total sexual predator, a pedophile. He saw my youth, he sensed my vulnerability, and he exploited it and me. Then I didn't know what to feel. I thought it must be my fault. And how old was he? I think he was like late teens at the time. I'm not Mm. exactly sure. Mm -hmm. And this is something that happened to him off and on throughout his childhood. He tells another story about how he and a group of boys went to this like workshop. It sounds like to learn how to work in the factory. Mm -hmm. And the guy there abused essentially all of the boys. Oh, shit. It just it kind of keeps popping up and again like he didn't have any role models for how to be like what being gay meant Mm -hmm. you know so he's being introduced to essentially these pedophiles that are taking advantage of him and this is just kind of i mean it's traumatic and confusing yeah he did end up getting hired as a stage assistant at the theater and by the way i do want to say when he tells these stories in the book Mm-hmm. he's very blunt about what happened but also you get a sense that i just don't want to miss portray where he's at with this stuff mm-hmm. he kind of tells the stories in this matter of fact like well this is what happened sort of way mm-hmm. um you get a sense that whatever trauma he suffered because of these experiences he's you know processed at this point so i just okay. want to like just want i just feel like i should put that up there 
Okay. So he got hired at this theater. He got hired as a stage assistant. And it sounds like he really loved the job. He says, I threw myself happily into the great British tradition of young blokes getting hammered. On the nights off from work, I go down to a lively local boozer named the Dirty Duck. Drinking became my social life. Yet, right from the start, I was never a social drinker. It had a purpose. I drank to get drunk. Mm. So, like, you know, like a lot of rock stars, substance abuse issues. Yeah. Starting early. But his theatrical career was taking off, but he was kind of getting disenchanted. And around this time, he started really rediscovering his passion for music. And in the book, he talks a lot about how much of the Beatles meant to him. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something about like, you know, they weren't much before him, really. If you think about this is yeah. getting into the, the mid to late 60s and the Beatles had sort of just hit their kind of earliest sort of British invasion stride. And here's, you know, four dudes from Liverpool. It's north of England, but it's kind of a similar working class kind of upbringing. So I think he sort of looked at them and was like, hey, like they come from the same type of place I do. Like maybe Mm. this is within reach. Mm -hmm. He also discovered classic blues musicians like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Bessie Smith. And then later on, he really got drawn towards, you know, that late 60s kind of heavy rock sound like Jimi Hendrix, Joe Cocker, Janis Joplin. Okay. But he makes it very clear he was very resistant to the like the hippie counterculture. Okay. Um, so he says from the book, he says there's a certain downbeat, even dour element to the black country nature that declines to get swept away by hippie dreams and flower power. I bought enemy and melody maker and read all about peace and love in California, but as far as I was concerned, it might as well have been happening on Mars. I lived in a council house on Walsall and rode my moped to work. I got pissed on barley wine and the dirty duck. All that hippie stuff fell out of reach, two different worlds. Mm. And that's interesting because this is something that I think people really associate with punk rock. Like there's a famous story about how Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols got discovered where he was walking down the street and Malcolm McLaren, who's the manager of the Sex Pistols, kind of put the band together. Mm-hmm. Sees this just snotty kid with bad teeth walking down the street in a Pink Floyd shirt that he had purposely ripped off and, and then scrawled I hate above the name <laughs> Pink Floyd. <laughs> So like, you know, punk rock was very much like a reaction against this kind of like hippie la 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 kumbaya thing. You know, Mm -hmm. because these were all working class. Again, you know, this is this is Britain uh, post-war. The economy is in the downturn. Everyone's on the dole kind of thing. And so these British teens were just like, what the fuck is this hippie firepower? It's like, that's Mm -hmm. not my life. You know, so it's interesting that Rob was kind of like growing out of the same sort of milieu. And I'll talk about that when I talk a little bit about the new wave of British heavy metal. So he started going to see live music in the area. One act that really grabbed his like attention was uh, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Have you ever heard of him? No, it, never. They were on one hit wonder and they have this song called Fire. Um, okay. I might play a little just a little short snippet of it here. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. It's not heavy metal, but it was very like influential on heavy metal culture just because of the theatricality. It ended up being like a big influence on like Alice Cooper and I think even Kiss. And Arthur Brown, he was famous for like he would sing the song. He had this kind of almost like black metal face paint i think and then he wore like a helmet that had a big flame coming out of it 
<laughs> it was very like an it, actual flame or like yeah, like like actual he had a burning helmet on his head <laughs> oh cool you can you can watch him on youtube it is it is goofy because this is the goofiest 60s bullshit um and it is such a like oh this is like such a novelty song mm-hmm. but it ended up having this huge impact on like heavy metal culture because it was just it was so just so theatrical right know, and kind of in your face so he was really drawn to arthur brown i think because of the theatricality but he says in the book he was like but musically it wasn't really my thing he was really drawn to bands like deep purple led zeppelin black sabbath like all these like first wave heavy metal bands that yeah. kind of started in the late 60s early 70s so this is what he has to say about that he says as guitars and drums grew louder so did the singers i loved huge voices and hearing robert plant and gillen belting it out did things to me They were incredibly exciting to hear. I heard them and I just knew this is it. This is the music I want to make. He also said about Zeppelin and Deep Purple, he said, Zeppelin and Purple triggered something in me and changed my thinking. Before them, I still wanted to be an actor. I was side stage at the Grand every night, watching actors and comedians getting standing ovations, thinking it must be the best feeling in the world. Hearing Plant and Gillen changed that. Now, suddenly, I wanted to be a singer. Mm. Um... So this is this is where it like starts for him. Okay. Now he's in his like late teens, early twenties at this point. Okay. And so this is where he really starts also exploring his sexuality. And he did have some not great experiences. It sounds like there was a lot of kind of hooking up. Also working at this theater, there was an older, I think it was an actor, he was like constantly hitting on him. And he was like and, and so again it was just like, is this how you have to act to be gay? And he was like, Ugh. I don't I just I don't want any of that yeah. but he kind of didn't know how else to be he also uh and the answer of course is no the answer to that and is this oh, what yeah. you need like what being an actor like of course the answer to that is no just in yeah. case anybody was <laughs> unclear about that out there and was like do i need to be like do i do i need yeah. to be hounded by predators at every turn no no that's that's wrong but it just like when you read about it and like i said it sounds like he's really like he's very reflective about this time in his history but he doesn't seem particularly in pain about it now mm-hmm. but it really does just break my heart that you know this guy like he just he had no he had no frame of reference yeah or what being gay meant yeah. so he says my sexual confusion deepened the gay world remained a mystery to me i was curious about it how could i not be yet also scared of it after my previous bad experiences i was a little boy lost but i was desperate to dip my toe into that world and try to have a relationship he also tells a story about how at one point he like he had some itching on his nether regions Mm. He didn't know what that meant. So he was like, dad, come look at this. And his dad was like, uh, son, you've got crabs. Like who have oh, you been hanging out with? No. Like, Ooh. Yeah. But at this point he was like, he basically gave up on theater altogether because he really just, he was like, I want to be in a band. I want to be a singer. So he quit the theater. He got a job as a store manager at that Harry Fenton menswear shop that I mentioned earlier. And then while he was working there, he, he started going to live shows just you know bands coming through birmingham like on a regular basis and i'm not gonna go through the list but he just like listed all the big bands from the time. and then he ended up joining a local kind of bar band called abraxas this morphed into athens wood he said they played quote bluesy prog rock athens wood began playing like pubs in the area at first he said he was frightened to perform but then kind of as soon as he got on stage he just realized he loved it he loved performing he he loved just like the way he could like command an audience is the same mm. but athenwood kind of didn't go anywhere it sort of dribbled to a halt 
And then as the band collapsed, though, he just continued to go to shows, get drunk, watch bands. There's also this kind of famous like legend about him, about how like he was discovered for Judas Priest because he was working in a sex shop. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he's like, this is not really what happened. He was basically like, had started visiting this porno shop. He just kind of would stop it out of curiosity. He said they did have some gay magazines, but he never bought them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up becoming friends with the guy who worked behind the counter because they would just they ended up bonding over music, just talking about bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day the guy called and was like, hey, I'm going to be busy for the next few weekends. Like, can you just come in and look after the shop for me for a couple of weeks? And he was like, well, and the guy's like, I'll pay you. And he was like, OK, that sounds good. So he ended up working there for a couple of weeks, like just sort of under the table. But then somehow this kind of became part of like the lore of Judas Priest. Right. After uh, Athens Wood fell apart, he formed another band called Hiroshima, which he said also played bluesy prog rock. They played a few pubs around the area, but didn't generate a lot of interest. But meanwhile, his sister, Sue, had started dating this guy named Ian Hill. And Ian Hill was playing bass in a new band in the area that was kind of getting some notice called Judas Priest. So this is what he has to say about it. He says they had recently hit a few problems. Both their singer and their drummer had walked out and they needed replacements. Sue was telling me about this one day, then stopped and looked at me and said, you know, Rob, you should try out for Priest. I looked back at Sue as the possibility ran through my mind. Hmm. Yeah, I told her. Yeah, I think I probably should. So I'm not going to go through like the whole history of Judas Priest because it's a lot. It's like its own episode, but just to like hit the high points of the timeline. So Judas Priest, they started in Birmingham in 1969, originally led by vocalist Al Atkins and bassist Bruno Stapano with John Perry on guitar and John Partridge on drums. The name, I never knew this before. The name came from a Bob Dylan song, which was called The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Huh. Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. So when Frankie Lee needed money one day, Judas quickly got to put a rubber roller in tins and place them on a footstool. So they recorded a few demos, but didn't really catch on. And then Perry, the guitarist, ended up taking his own life. Uh, he was just 18, so they were really young. Oh, wow. And they just went through this period of just like lineup changes and everything, uh, auditioned a bunch of new guitarists. Eventually, they settled on a guy named K.K. Downey. And any metal fans will know that name because he is like Rob Halford, K.K. Downey, and Glenn Tipton are like the names you associate with Judas Priest. Okay. Um, if you're a metal fan. So they settled on KK Downing as a guitarist. Then they joined Tony Iommi's management company. Just curious. I know the answer. Do you know who Tony Iommi is? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Amelia is not metal at all. If you guys Mm-mm. didn't know this. Uh, nope. Tony Iommi Tony is the uh, guitarist for Black Sabbath. Ah, okay. Yeah. He, he sort of invented the metal sound. Oh, Like okay. the modern metal sound. But he had this management company. Judas Priest joined up with his management company. Al Atkins was still the vocalist, but you know they weren't getting paid at this point. They were still <sighs> sort of just a pub band. He had a wife and kids, I think. And he finally was just like, hey, guys, I can't keep doing this. So he left the band. It sounds like on good terms. He actually even like continued to write songs for them after a while, including a song called Whiskey Woman, which would okay. eventually become the song Victim of Changes, which is like one of the Judas Priest like classics. So 
So Rob joined after Atkins left. He played his first gig with Priest in 1973, and then they went and made their first tour of Europe in 1974, at which point they immediately signed with Gull Records. Gull suggested they add a fifth member, so they brought on second guitarist Glenn Tipton. And so, like I said, Glenn Tipton and KK Downing, they're, they're like real, like Judas Priest is really known for this like twin guitar attack, which is kind okay. of one of the hallmarks of the new wave of British heavy metal sound. Like um, uh, Iron Maiden is known for that. Uh, the Scorpions, even though they're a German band, but they're, they're kind of known for that. Like two guitar gods just kind of going at it up there on the mm-hmm. stage. Their first album was called Rocka Rolla. Was released in 1974. They hadn't really solidified a sound yet, so it kind of featured this like mix of styles from like straight ahead bar rock to like more like intricate prog rock. But it was not a particularly good experience for them. They got paired with this producer named Roger Bain, who really just didn't get them. Mm. Um, so like they had all these like fan favorite live songs that he just refused to put on the album. And then they had, I can't, I forgot to write down the name of it, but they had this, like one of their signature songs was like this 10 minute epic. And he just chopped it down to a two minute instrumental. What? Um, yeah. So just, just a dick, basically. Yeah. The f- <laughs> uh, okay. Mm-hmm. It was not a particularly well-received album. Rob would later joke that fans should just go out and burn it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think they've kind of disowned it. Uh, but they followed that with The Sad Wings of Destiny in 1976. It had kind of a similar prog rock sound. The lead single off of that was The Ripper, which became like, or has become like a staple for them, like one of their live staples. Oh, hear my warning. Never turn your back on the Ripper. You'll soon shake with fear. It was not all that successful at first. (laughs) Um, And this was like a weird time to be trying to do this like proggy metal sound because this is the rise of punk rock. Mm. Which was, like I said, punk was a reaction against like the hippie kind of subculture. Yeah. But it was also kind of a, a reaction against the, the first wave heavy metal, who they saw as just these like bloated dinosaurs winking off on their guitar for 10 minutes kind of thing, <laughs> so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, punk rock was very much like about pulling out, stripping out the artifice out of music. And, you know, so, you know, you have bands like the Sex Pistols, the Ramones. The Clash, and they're doing these like two-minute songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so Judas Priest was just kind of falling into this weird nether region of like kind of being in between worlds at this point. Like for the sound they were working on at this point, they were probably sort of three, four years too late. Like Prog Rock was just kind of done at this point. But this was the album where they sort of really started to refine their sound, really started to move into a, a more overtly heavy metal direction. Glenn Tipton and Kiki Downing have said that they were inspired by the sound of the factories around Birmingham. Mm. It founded commercially, but it did catch the attention of a guy named David Hemmings, who was a music manager. It also caught the attention of CBS Records. So they ended up signing on with Hemmings, and then he got them a contract with CBS. CBS gave them 60,000 pounds for their next album. So that's a step up. Yeah. So they released Sin After Sin in 1977. It was their first album to be certified gold. So this came out right as what was called the new wave of British heavy metal started taking off. And so they were able to kind of ride that wave very quickly. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. Let's talk a little bit about the new wave of British heavy metal. (laughs) 
Um, uh, I, I mentioned it on our Cheese Dolly episode. Mm-hmm. Like, New Wave of British Heavy Metal really was a big inspiration for thrash metal, which came along a little a little later. It started in the UK in the 1970s, and like thrash, it, it took the like classic heavy metal sound of, like I said, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, but then kind of infused this like punk rock aggression and like this intensity into it. Mm-hmm. And so it made it just more urgent. It also started, it was kind of like almost a parallel scene to the punk scene and they started in a very similar way like with this real like diy attitude you know word about bands would spread through like homemade zines and mm. do like self-reported tape trade things like that it was really like punk born out of the british working class britain was in a recession at the time uh like i said everyone was kind of like or at least it felt like everyone was kind of on the dole there were no job opportunities there was all these like young people specifically young men who just had nothing to do and no future that they could see but whereas punk was like almost immediately political, um, oh, uh-huh. new wave of British heavy metal bands weren't interested. They they wanted to do party rock. Like to them, it was about escapism. It was about okay. our life sucks. Let's go party. Let's drink some beers. Let's try to get laid. One thing they took from metal was like punk kind of sneers at the idea of like musical virtuosity. Mm-hmm. Like almost the shittier, particularly this era of punk, almost the mm-hmm. shittier you were at playing your instruments, like the more like authentic you were. And like <laughs> the the listeners cannot see the look on your face, but <laughs> you look skeptical. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of giving the Jennifer Lawrence gift where she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say like anyone, like just go back and listen to particularly like the Sex Pistols first album, kind of first and only real album. Mm -hmm. Like it sucks. Like it's hard to listen to yeah. um, because it there's nothing to it. Like it's, it's four dudes yelling, can't play their instruments. Like it takes that punk thing to a level of just like being boring and annoying, you know? Okay. <laughs> the, I'm not a sex business fan. So that was the punk thing. The metal dudes, because, that you know, these new wave of British heavy metal dudes, because they're coming from metal, they really did love the whole idea of the virtuoso. They worshipped, like, Jimmy Page, people like that. So it was, you know, this idea of the guitar god. And a lot of, like, very famous uh, metal, quote, guitar gods really came out of this scene. Mm. Probably most famously, like, K.K. Downing. Glenn Tipton from Judas Priest. Also, Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden and Judas Priest are kind of the two biggest of the new wave of British heavy metal bands. Along with this like musical virtuosity, they also really loved singers who had these like powerful operatic vocals. So Bruce yeah. Dickinson from Iron Maiden is probably the most famous for this. But Rob Halford also really, what would the word be, really got noticed just because he did. He had this just powerful delivery. And one thing Rob Halford could do is really like sing in this high-pitched register Mm -hmm. um, that was unique and became a huge inspiration for a lot of metal singers after. Okay, so that's so that's new wave of British heavy metal as a movement. It kind of, like I said, was kind of parallel with punk rock. It was largely ignored by the media. But then a London DJ named Neil Kay was instrumental in its eventual popularity because he had a rock club that he called the Bandwagon Heavy Metal Soundhouse. And he would insist on playing like demos and albums from these New Wave of British Heavy Metal bands. And then he also kind of worked behind the scenes to get them some radio airplay. And so the movement just kind of spread. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, these new wave of British heavy metal bands, particularly Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, just exploded. I don't know, like all all our younger listeners probably do not remember just how, like, if you turned on MTV around 1984, it was just all these bands, just like mm. back to back to back. Judas Priest's next album was Stained Class, came out in 1978. I mentioned it on the Choose Dolly episode, and I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit he has an interesting quote about the song beyond the realms of death from that album he says probably my favorite track on the album was pinned by me and les binks les had settled in well as priest's drummer and he and i wrote beyond the realms of death together it was a song about a protagonist who was struggling through the world at the end of his tether it had some very personal lines i am safe here in my mind and free to speak with my own kind they washed and dressed me with my own kind because in 1978 the idea of being able to talk to other gay men openly freely and without stigma seemed as likely as pole vaulting to mars Mm. i just knew it will never bloody happen Mm. and it's important to note that through the height of his career with judas priest rob halford was in the closet um now there were rumors Mm -hmm. i remember these from when i was a kid but i don't know if you remember this because you may not have like been very aware of this music at the mm-hmm. time. But like back in the 80s, it was like all of these metal bands. People were like, you know, so-and-so, he's gay. You know, John Bon Jovi, he's gay. You know, the guys from Rat, they're gay. Poison. Yeah, I... It was everywhere. Um, Question. Yeah. Did the rest of the band know that he was gay or was yeah. it like nobody? Okay. Yeah, he was living openly within his small group, but he was keeping it publicly public private but yeah this i've been thinking about this since i read his book like i just i remember so much it was just like everybody all of these metal dudes particularly like the ones like you know this was also the height of or the start of like the glam metal scene Uh you know bands like poison rat things like that where you know these guys literally wore makeup you know yeah and so there was just this like everyone just was like whispering about all of these bands being gay I think there's like a weird correlation between this and the satanic panic because there's this is the same era as the satanic panic. Yeah. And it seemed like, at least in my memory, it was like this short jump between, well, you know, it was either they're gay. So, you know, that means they're Satanists. Right. Or they're Satanists. So, you know, that turned them gay. Right. Like that was the logic people were trying to use. And this was in the 80s, right? This was like, yeah. All the rumor. I mean, obviously, I was born in 77, so I don't know what people were talking about in the 70s. Right. But I'm thinking like mid 80s. Like it was just everyone was like, oh, yeah, the guy from Judas Priest is gay. Oh, the guy from Iron Maiden is gay. Like that was like 85, 86, 87. That was right. Just, well, that's also, you know, the AIDS epidemic is, you know, full force. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like being, you know, I was, I was a child during the 80s, but definitely have a lot of awareness of what was going on. And it felt like that sort of gay panic was everywhere. And it was then, of course, exacerbated by the AIDS epidemic. 
Yeah. Like not only were, did you need to be worried? I mean, this is the thought, this is the sort of prevailing thought mentality. Not only did you need to be worried about somebody being gay, but you also needed to be worried about them giving you AIDS, which was fucking stupid, but yeah, well, it, it felt like it was everywhere. And, and that's going to come up in this story too, that, that, that AIDS panic of the mm-hmm. time period, but like specifically this like connection to these heavy metal bands, it just mm-hmm. seems like, like the satanic panic, it was just more like these, they're here to corrupt your morals. They're here to corrupt our youth. Right. It was just all part of that same right. paranoia. So I remember hearing rumors about Rob Halford being gay, but I didn't take them that seriously. Because even then, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm just like revisionist history in my own mind. But like my memory at the time was everyone was like, oh, Bon Jovi's gay. Oh, so-and-so's gay. And being like, really? Like, how do you know? Like, just well, like, yeah. because he's wearing makeup, like it's an act. Like, I feel like even back then, being pretty skeptical about all the rumors <laughs> and just being like, like, you don't know anything. What are you talking about? Yeah. I remember being like, who cares? Like, yeah. what do you care? Yeah. I mean, I definitely didn't care. Yeah. It was definitely not something I cared about. But I do remember it just being everywhere. Yeah. All of these guys. Now, around this time, uh, when they put out Sting Class, this is also when they revamped their image. So they had kind of dressed in a more sort of 70s prog rocky way, like, I don't even really know what that means. Mm-hmm. But like, if you look at like pictures of them from the seventies, lots of like flowing blousey shirts and things like that. And then around this time, I think they, they were just like, we need to stand out. So they revamped their image and adopted this like leather biker look, um, okay. particularly that look is associated with Rob Halford. Now I was always under the impression, I think it's from Rob Halford quotes that I've heard over Mm -hmm. the years that he kind of did this intentionally. Like he was sort of, since he couldn't live out, he was kind of like tongue in cheek, bringing in aspects of gay subculture into the metal world. Yeah. Sort of stealthily. He claims otherwise though in his book. So he says, our leather and studs image came together gradually over the next few weeks and felt very natural. I thought we were channeling all sorts of things from macho culture to Marlon Brando. But the end result was that suddenly we looked like a heavy metal. The Mm. biggest myth about this new stage gear is that I had somehow masterminded the image as a cover and event for my homosexuality, that I was getting a thrill from dressing on stage as I'd like to dress in the street or the bedroom. This is utter bollocks. I had no interest in S&M domination or the whole queer subculture of leather and chains. It just didn't do it for me. My sexual preference was for men, sure, but I was, and still am, pretty vanilla. I've never used a whip in the boudoir in my life. Or have I? Hang on. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, get on it. (laughs) Get on it. Explore. What is funny, though, like, if you look at Rob Halford's style from this time period, like, do you remember the Police Academy movies? Yes. Do you remember whenever they would like accidentally wander into that gay bar and then the music would start up and all the leather guys would like come out yeah. of the woodwork? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like that's what he looked like at the time. Like that was the look of Judas Priest. And it's funny, like I certainly don't remember ever making any connection. But in mm-hmm. the years since, like I will say, even though he's saying now, like I didn't do it. Like this wasn't me trying to bring my homosexuality into the look of the band. He has made these kind of cheeky comments and in interviews since where he was like, I mean, I don't know why everyone was surprised that I was gay because I mean, just look at me back then. Right. So, like, so I think he, he's very tongue in cheek about it now. He also said about this look, he says, our fans, male and female, certainly didn't detect any secret cryptic gay element to our new image. They just thought we looked macho and butch and alpha male. Imitation outfits 
<laughs> give you a moment to laugh. Well, I'm also just because right wasn't wasn't part of the wasn't one of the village people like the biker dude. Yeah, like it was right fucking there, you all. Yeah, I know it's it's really like I mean even if it wasn't intentional, the fact that all these metal dude fans just missed it, like yeah. for a decade. I mean, I think I think the only person who ever wore that kind of a look and wasn't trying to secretly sig- I mean, I'm not saying that he was trying to secretly signal, but it like. It was Mar. I think Marlon Brando, right? And what? Yeah, whatever. Uh, the wild movie. one. The wild yeah. one. Yeah, and then it after that, well, it was like it was it was this. And that whole <laughs> it aesthetic. Bi- it was gay biker dudes. Come on, guys. Yeah, that whole aesthetic really actually is very directly tied to that movie. Yeah. Uh, so it may just be that Rob, like he watched the wild one and like a lot of gay dudes was probably like, Hey, that Marlon Brando is pretty hot and sort of like wanted to take on the look the same way gay subculture also kind of latched onto that movie and was like, Hey, we like that look, but mm. at least from what he's saying, he wasn't self-aware about that. Connection. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to, I, I don't mean, doubt what he says. I doubt it a little bit, just because, like I said, he has made comments over the years that yeah, sort of winking about it. Right. To me, it's just funny that at any point that was ever not indicative of like a leather daddy, because in in my in my mind and my memory of the world, it was was Marlon Brando and the Wild Ones, and then leather daddies. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that was it. There wasn't like an in between. (laughs) My memory again of like the gay stereotype of the 80s mm-hmm. was there were essentially two that I remember. Mm-hmm. One was the ultra femme, mm-hmm. you know, moving into like the drag queen, mm-hmm. right? And then the other was the way straight culture perceived it, this threatening leather daddy, almost predatory. Yeah. And I mean, that was the joke in the police academy movies was like, oh my God, we wandered into this gay bar. We better get out before they turn as gay as the leather right. daddies descend on them. You know, right. like, so it's just really funny to me, whether it was intentional or not, this was definitely part of like the wide, like I said, stereotype of gay men. And yet the metal dudes were not putting it together. Yeah. Because I remember when he came out, uh, well, I'll talk about it. Let's put a pin in that. I'll yeah. talk about that. <laughs> so like he's he's saying here that this was not intentional. I I mean, I'll, I guess I'll take him at his word, but like I have to think there was at least a little bit of like he, he had to be a little bit self-aware at some mm. point, you know, mm-hmm. but either way, like this, this leather and bullet belt and like studs on the shoulders, leather hat, you know, cap kind of thing. This became very much part of like the heavy metal look of the time period and it really goes back to Judas Priest so their breakout album was the 1979 live album Unleashed in the East it was their first album to go platinum they followed that up with British Steel in 1980 this is the album like Unleashed in the East was the first platinum album British Steel is probably the first one where people outside of the metal world really started to take notice like this is where the song Breaking the Law comes from okay if there's a Judas Priest song that everybody knows it would be Breaking the Law like that's just one of those like you hear that in fucking Grover you know
after British Steel came screaming for vengeance in 1982. It was kind of their first massive, I think, US hit along with being a UK hit. Had classic songs like You've Got Another Thing Coming and Electric Eye. I think most fans would say that Screaming for Vengeance is probably their best album. Um, that's kind of the one everyone holds. That and maybe British Steel are kind of held up as like the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, later Priest albums were Defenders of the Faith, Turbo. Uh, this was controversial with Priest fans because they started really working with some pop-oriented song structures. They also incorporated synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rob would later call it the Love Hate Priest album. But like this time period, mid '80s, all of the metal bands were doing this. Like Iron Maiden put out. I think it was a Stranger in a Strange Land. Also had keyboards and all the like hardcore metal fans are like what are you doing you know because metal dudes are weirdly conservative and don't like change like bands are kind of not allowed to experiment right i.e metallica but anyway that's another uh that's a story for another day um they followed turbo up with ram it down from 1988 i feel like at this point he had to like be he was trolling his audience a little bit like just that like ram it down come on like I can't believe that that's entirely an accident. (laughs) (laughs) He also has a song, I can't remember which album, but from this time period called Turbo Lover. That's like, yeah, it's pretty homoerotic. And then they put out the Painkiller album in 1990. 1990 was also when they were put on trial for supposedly putting subliminal messages into their songs that led two fans to kill themselves. Yes. Not going to go into this story because I talked about it on the Choose Dolly episode. So if you want to know more, go listen to that. And I apologize because that episode will probably traumatize you. Yeah. So the only thing I'll say about that trial, here's here's just a quote from Rob where he talks about it. He says, once we got inside the court, I saw Vance's and Belknap's parents. Those were the kids who had killed themselves. They were the ones bringing the case, yet I didn't feel a flicker of anger toward them. They were misguided, but they had lost their young sons. They had been to hell. I wanted to go over and give them a hug. Mm. I didn't feel the same sympathy toward their lawyers. As soon as this case began, it became evident that where British courts are all about soberly finding the truth, American trials are essentially an adjunct of show business. Um, and he, and he, I didn't write down the quote, but he says something about how like the lawyer on the other side was like, this trial is about the parents of these poor children screaming for vengeance. Like, okay, all right, we get it. So that's kind of the Judas Priest story up mm-hmm. to this point. Like I said, I didn't want to go into, there's a lot to the Judas Priest story. There's also a lot of drama that was going on with the band. Not going to get into it because I want to mostly focus on Rob. He did end up leaving the band in 1992. There was a miscommunication with the band's management. He was getting disenchanted with the band. Like I said, there's a lot of drama going on within the band at the time. He was kind of like, I need a break. He wanted to record a solo album. He had also just gone through a breakup. This guy who he had been with just kind of abandoned him, it sounded like. Mm. So he was really like depressed. And he had talked to his friend, a guy named John Baxter, who was, I think, a music manager, and saying like, I'd really like to take a break from Priest and do a solo album. And this John Baxter was like, yeah, you should do that. I think he could be as big as Ozzy Osbourne. Because Ozzy, of course, started out as the singer of Black Sabbath, then went on to have an even bigger career as Ozzy. Rob is pretty skeptical about that, but he was like, yeah, I do think I want to do a solo album, though. 
So he sent a fax to the managers for Judas Priest, basically saying, I want to take a break. So this is the letter. He says, Dear Bill and Jane, I think the band and I need to take a break from each other. I'm going to step away and do a solo musical project. It's something I have wanted to do for a long time, and it's something that I need to do. My friend John Baxter will be managing this project for me. Thanks, Rob. So notice he never says he's quitting Judas Priest. Yeah. He says he's, he's just like, I need a break. I'm going to go do the solo album. So this is what he says the response was. He says, that was it. I didn't say a word about me leaving Priest because I didn't want to. John and I faxed the letter to Bill and Jane, and I forgot about it until the next day when Bill replied. He sent a very aggressive fax saying I was stupid to want to quit the band when we were at our peak and telling me I must need my head looked at. You certainly wouldn't call it him giving me his blessing and wishing me well. I was astonished. Where had that come from? So things just kind of escalated from there. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I think there were some internal band tensions, but it really sounds like what drove him out of the band was this fight with the managers. Uh They escalated when he announced that he was going to hold a press conference. The plan for the press conference was he wanted to announce this solo album. But the rumor mills started. Um, so people start off being like, oh, he's going to say he's going to lose, leave Judas Priest. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the gossip got more and more gross. And press started speculating that he was going to announce that he had it. Fucking hell. Yeah. So, and it just, this is like the same time. Or like, if you remember me talking about the Clive Barker story. Mm-hmm. Like this is well, it's actually 20 years earlier than when Clive Barker had all the health problems. Even in the 2010s, people were like, "Oh my God, he has AIDS! He has AIDS!" Like, right? Just go fuck yourself, seriously. Yeah. Um, this is what he has to say about that. He said it was a fecund, toxic time for gossip like that. Freddie Mercury had recently told the world he was HIV positive just yeah. days before he died, and yeah. the scandal sheets were on alert for the next high-profile victim. Tongues had been wagging that it might be me. In a way, it wasn't a surprise. I was still in the closet, very much so, and I had no plans to come dramatically bursting out of it anytime soon. At the same time, on a personal level, some of the unbearable pressure on me to keep my sexual orientation secret had relaxed. Mm. And he said, innuendo had swirled around me for ages. I got used to journalists dropping sly questions about my views on gays and derogatory. I always took the same approach as Freddie had. That's nothing to do with the band. I just figured it was nobody's business. So when it came up in the press conference, I just answered it as matter-of-factly as possible. No, no, I don't have AIDS, thanks. Next question, please. So like like you were saying, it's just, you know, this AIDS panic was... Yeah. I'd like to say this was the tail end of it, but like we said, it happened with Clive Barker 20 years later. So. Yeah. So after leaving Juice Priest, he formed a band called Fight. Really good band if you're into metal. Not gonna talk about them very much because they didn't last very long. They put out two albums, uh, one in 93 and then one in 95. And then he followed with this industrial influence band called Two in 1997 so and two was like the number two and then w-o okay so this was if you remember 1997 this was the rise of you know nine inch nails goth rock marilyn manson right i remember the metal dudes being real mad about this album this two album basically like rob sold out like he's just trying to get him trying to be marilyn manson whatever it's not a bad album, but you can kind of tell it, he was like outside of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But like I said, metal dudes don't like it when their dudes try to experiment. I was mm-hmm. like all about, I was like, yeah, try some new stuff, man. Like some of it works, some of it doesn't. But so he put out the album Voyeurs. He actually put it out on Trent Reznor's record label. And then he gave an interview to MTV News. 
So this is what happened in the interview. He says he broke down in tears and then said, I think I think it started where he was like sort of made an offhand comment about him being gay. And then it kind of led to an out and out coming out. Moment. Mm. So he said, it's a wonderful moment when you walk out of the closet. Now I've done that and I've freed myself. It's a great feeling for me to finally let go and make this statement, especially to the advocate, because this magazine has brought me so much comfort over the years. Obviously, this is just a wonderful day for me. So I think this was actually like a follow-up interview with The Advocate after he had come out on MTV. Mm -hmm. Um, About the MTV interview, he said, it was beautiful. It was very unplanned. It was one of those things where I'm at MTV in New York. I'm talking about a project that I was working on called Two. And in the casual course of the conversation, we were talking about the overall music and the direction and the feelings. And I said something to the effect of, well, speaking as a gay man, blah, 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 blah. And then I heard the producer's clipboard bounce on the floor. It was one of the <laughs> what? What? Yeah. It was one of those gay sharp intakes of breath. Oh my God, he's come out. And so that was it. So it was very simple. I think if I'd, I'd still say today, if I'd have really thought this through, like today's the day I'm going to come out, maybe I even wouldn't. Maybe I may not have come out per se, because it's still a big moment for so many of us with a close friend with someone at school, with mom and dad, with whomever, to actually say, hey, I'm a gay guy or I'm a gay girl. It's just a big, big deal. It's just a glorious, glorious moment. So I remember this very clearly. I was in college at the time. I was a heavy metal radio DJ. I was never actually, like, until later, I wasn't, like, a super huge Judas Priest fan. But I did, you know, it was like, you can't be a metal dude and not be into Judas Priest. And then there was, it was just all over MTV News. Oh, my God, Rob Halford comes out as gay. And I kind of remember my reaction was, because remembering back to that 80s era where everyone was supposedly gay, I was like, oh, I go okay, one of them actually is, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I remember the metal dudes in my world just had like a real crisis of confidence. (laughs) Why? It doesn't (laughs) matter. It was, oh my God. It was, I mean, it was funny and kind of gross. I don't remember a lot of out and out like homophobia like people like trash talking him Mm -hmm. but i do remember it was like i think this is when people started looking at his image and being like oh wait because they're you know all the metal dudes are dressed like this too and being like oh wait wait what does this mean does this mean mean i'm gay yeah maybe it does dude i don't know check in with yourself yeah have a conversation with yourself and (laughs) calm the fuck down (laughs) I do remember one moment that like bums me out. I was at a party. Mm-hmm. It was with some of the metal dudes and somehow like we had the TV on. I think it was in TV. This was right after the coming out announcement. I think they showed a shot of Rob Halford mm-hmm. and everyone at the party started booing. So that was like the one moment of just outright homophobia that I remember. Come but on. I will say that seemed to dissipate pretty quick. Okay. And in fact, if anything, like, I think there was a moment of panic. And then people were like, I don't know, he's still pretty fucking metal. Like, maybe it's not a big deal. I think for me, because the metal world up to this point, frankly, was pretty fucking homophobic. It's very much based on these ideas of machismo. Right. Even like he said, alpha male kind of, you know, fighting and fucking kind of, you know, bullshit. Mm-hmm. I feel like when Rob came out of the closet, like people at first started to question themselves and what it meant to be in the metal and then mm-hmm. started questioning like all their assumptions about metal. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it really opened the door. And now, like, I, I would say the metal culture has changed significantly. I mean, obviously, it still exists. You know, the right. homophobia is still there. But it's not it's not a given the way it used to be. There are a mm-hmm. lot of, like, a number of musicians have come out since, including the two lead, I'm, I'm forgetting their names because I didn't write it down, the guitarist and the drummer for a band called Cynic, which was, like, a big influence on the death metal scene. Mm-hmm. They both came out of the closet later. There's uh, the band Otep. Their lead singers are now lesbian. Like it just started to, I think people just got over themselves and started to open up. And I really think it was like Rob Halford kicked the door open Mm. and it just opened the floodgates. And now like you can't be openly homophobic in metal and not be vilified by the metal class, by big chunks of metal fandom. And Rob himself, I think it did kind of ding his, I don't know, reputation for like a minute. Right. And he was just immediately embraced back into the metal fold. So, uh, so two put out this one album and then he went and formed a new metal band called Halford in 1999. They released one studio album and one live album. And then 2003. Oh, and I should talk just briefly about what happened when he left Judas Priest. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a, there's a myth that he left Judas Priest because he wanted to come out of the closet and, and the rest of the band were like, no, you know, that's really not what happened. Like, it sounds like it was, he left the band because of this dispute with the management and then five Five years later kind of just blurted it out in an interview he was gay <laughs> so like Oops. i don't think there was a master plan well this of course did lead him leaving judas priest led to this famous moment in metal where you know the rest of the guys in judas priest they didn't want to break up the band mm-hmm. and so rather than like you know bring in a singer from another popular band and kind of like slot them in they were like let's basically go out and find the best singer from like a judas priest cover band uh-huh. in the world and they found this guy who called himself Tim Ripper Owens, who was saying in a Judas Priest cover band in Akron, Ohio. They're just like a bar band, mm-hmm. you know, like a tribute band. And then brought him in to be the lead singer of Judas Priest. And I think he was with them for like two or three albums. He was a really good fucking singer, by the mm-hmm. way. Tim Ripper Owens, like no shade to that guy. Well, this, of course, inspired the movie Rockstar. Um, <laughs> Which stars Friends cast member Jennifer Aniston. We've come to Friends Circle. Oh my God, I forgot yep. she was in that. Yeah. Yep, yep, uh, yep, yep. Mark Wahlberg, of course. And I think, didn't they even like turn it into a Broadway musical or something? <laughs> Maybe I right. couldn't I'm looking that up yeah. right now. Uh, so um, please continue. But don't, but I would say the movie Rockstar, it, like, don't watch that thinking it's the Judas Priest story. Like, unfortunately, that movie kind of turns the gay lead singer who leaves the band into the butt of the joke. Yeah. Um, and that, that's not Rob Halford. He's not the butt of any joke. Like I said, he's a literal god if you're a metal fan. He did ultimately return to Judas Priest in 2003. I remember them performing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame around this time. And I feel like I could be misremembering this, but it was this big deal that Rob was going to like come back and perform with Judas Priest. Um, So I don't think he had officially like rejoined the band at that point, but I think that kind of like got the conversation started. Like, oh, maybe Rob is rejoining Judas Priest. Uh, But he did rejoin in 2003. Since his return, uh, they've released six more albums. The most recent being Firepower in 2018. They're all pushing 70 now, still fucking rocking. Rob now describes himself as the, quote, stately homo of heavy metal. (laughs) Um, And he said that his announcement that he was gay was, quote, the greatest thing I could have done for myself. 
That is the story of Rob Halford, metal god, lead singer of Judas Priest. That is fantastic. What a great story. Yeah. Like, yeah, just a nice story. And then um, I'm gonna like I'm gonna play some Judas Priest on this episode, just like little snippets. And I do want to say, even if you're not into metal, just fucking take a second to listen to the guy's voice. Like, I mean, he was he was and is the real fucking deal. Yeah, man. Very cool. Um, there is no rock star musical. I'm thinking of something else then, yes. But I mean, they did they did Rock of Ages. Oh School of Rock. <laughs> rock of Ages is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Scotty again, fact checked in real time. Uh. <laughs> I'm enjoying these real time fact checks. Yeah. Uh, Rock of Ages. Who's the lead singer of Poison? Brett Michaels. Right. So no, t- but I think I think okay. You can fact check me again. I believe the guy who was in Rock of Ages actually was Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. I could be wrong. Or maybe at one point it was Brett Michaels and then Sebastian Bach took over. It's completely possible. But what I was going to say is at the Tony Awards and Rock of Ages was, I, I can't, I'm sorry, no shade. I can't believe that Rock of Ages was up for a Tony. Because it, it had to have been because they performed a number. So it had to have been up for an award. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that it was Brett Michaels because he was out there in the bandana, right? Yeah, that would was, be Brett Michaels, yeah. And he was like performing, the, you know, the hit song from the Broadway musical, blah, blah, blah. This is the cast of Rock of Ages. And like, as he is, I think he was like walking backwards and a fly rail was coming in and just bonk, just creamed him <laughs> on the head. That I remember watching that because that Tony Awards was such a hot mess. Like the sound was so fucked up. Brett Michaels got beamed with a, a fly rig. Like I was just like, what are we doing here? Like this is supposed to be, you know, the fucking vanguard of American theater. And this award shows a fucking mess. It's like Keystone Cops. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Oh my God. I maybe it was you talking about how Rock of Ages is like really not good. Like I feel like it's like known that that musical is not good. Well, there just is a couple. I mean, it's, I think it's essentially like a jukebox musical, you know what yeah. I mean? And those are always, I mean, they end up always, I think, getting uh, nominated for stuff, but it's just. They're popular, but. They are not my yeah. cup of tea. Yeah, you know what I mean? The one about the four seasons and it was all like Frankie Valley music and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, is it, oh, what a night? That can't be the name of the fucking, that's a horrible name for a musical. I don't think but, yeah. that was the name of it, but yeah, I think it was the name of one of their songs. It was the name of one of their songs. Now I'm just, now we're just fact checking. Jersey Boys. That's Jersey what it Boys. Was. That was it. I'm, it's I saw Jersey that with Boys. my parents. I remember enjoying it, but also sort of feeling like, I mean, this is barely a musical. I hadn't heard the term jukebox musical, but it was just yeah. like, I'm not particularly a fan of musical theater, as I think you and I have discussed. Mm-hmm. But I respect it. And one thing I respect about musical theater is the original music. So when it's like a jukebox musical, like Rock of Ages or Jersey Boys, I'm kind of like, oh, what's the point? I could just go listen to the albums, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I we, I, I could go, I could, you know, drag out my soapbox again. But um, if musical theater works for you, and I completely understand that it doesn't work for everybody. To me, it works in the same way that something like Shakespeare works and that what mm. you have is a convention that is set up that when the inner life of a character reaches a certain point, it goes beyond 
spoken yeah. language and has to transcend into in into music. song right. yeah and into music and like that's that's you know that's like where the really like that's where the really good stuff lives just mm-hmm. spoken words are not enough to tell the story so for me jukebox musicals i have a hard time with them because it's like scene song scene song i mean it's just kind of like a greatest hits album with actors yeah know? a little bit and like a story kind of cobbled together within that yeah it's a lot of like performances with in performances mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it's like here's us at this concert and we're singing this song and like we're gonna come off stage and oh hey man that management is real crazy or like whatever <laughs> it just yeah. it's not like narratively it's not the strongest structure to right me to i i feel like i want to i don't know i need to like open my mind a little bit more to like trying to experience musical theater on its own terms again because there are some movie musicals that i love like singing mm-hmm. in the rain i think is fantastic mm-hmm. and actually i enjoy I mean, we've talked about the ways in which it's problematic i do enjoy west side story mm-hmm. um oh i'm so excited for i like yeah i'm very excited for the new movie I, I think my problem with musical theater has always been i think it's it's a little bit just the writer in me and even though i'm like a horror writer and i write fantastical stuff Mm-hmm. something about like that convention of breaking into song it just disrupts my suspension of disbelief in a way mm-hmm. that i struggle with mm-hmm. but i feel like that may be a younger version of me <laughs> mm-hmm. i feel like maybe i'm a more sophisticated i don't know connoisseur of art now but, right um, well and i think it's also like musicals themselves are evolving like you know it used to be sort of in the days of rogers and hammerstein and you know that kind of stuff that it was it was pretty music. It was just yeah. pretty music. But, you know, regardless of what you think of his work, we have people like Lin-Manuel Miranda who are mm-hmm. coming in and like they're really messing with the format. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's cool like little small independent musicals. Like I had told you about this years ago, but some people wrote a musical about Lizzie Borden. It's a musical yeah. called Lizzie. And it, that's it's fantastic. Like they really chose the right style of music to do mm-hmm. this. Um, you're like they really use music to give you an inside glance into Lizzie's mind Mm -hmm. and like what is happening. It supposes a lot of stuff, but it gives you a really interesting perspective on what was going on in Lizzie's life in the days leading up to the murder of her father and stepmother. Interesting. Yeah. You've told me about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I don't, I I don't want to sit here and say exactly what the style of it is because I don't know the genres that well, but it's definitely not like pretty music um, yeah well and i do en- pretty i do enjoy like sweeney todd um mm, mm-hmm. I think, well what i'm forgetting his name what's the guy who wrote that and then he also wrote west side story that's sweeney todd sondheim right it's sondheim yeah i'm pretty I, sure i do like some of his stuff because i think there was like a little more edge to it I think where I come down with musicals a lot is I can enjoy a lot of the music in isolation, but somehow I always struggle with just that interweaving of narrative and music in mm-hmm. one form, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, do I want think, to try it again. I think again, me pulling out my little soapbox, I think a lot of that has to do with the way they're directed and acted. That's probably um, true. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's a lot of park and bark going on where it's like, like I said, like scene, 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 scene. Let me come to center stage and then I'm going to belt out this big song. Yeah. Um, think, as opposed to allowing it to be an integrated part of the scene in the story. That may be why in some ways I can enjoy a movie musical more because I think there's an artifice to film anyway. Yeah. Because you're always aware of like the editing and things. 
and somehow doing it in film you have all these like tricks you can do to kind of pull you into the song right visually that are probably harder to do on stage particularly for like community theaters who don't have a big budget and things like that so yeah yeah it may just be i have not had that like transcended experience at a stage musical before but yeah i'd like to have it you know yeah i mean there's some of them are just like fun oh they're just fun there are are musicals out there that i think are like really beautiful and actually really really important parts of theater history um and then there's ones that are just like i said they're just fun like they're just good phantom of the opera is so silly but it's (laughs) so fun i mean it's it feels very you know lawn chainy it feels it's like it it leans into the spectacle of it i mean almost to the point of being ridiculous but it's like everybody's on the same page you know i mean when i've heard the music to phantom of the opera i've always enjoyed it yeah it's 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 a good time you know it's a good time all right well um, anyway (laughs) converted The category is Live Work Again, in uh, in honor of Pride Month. I'm going to be real with everybody. I really wanted to do a story. I wanted to do something kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that is a little hard to find. Uh, there are, there are yeah. of course, a lot of icons, a lot of really important figures in gay history. But, you know, as is probably unsurprising, the stories are filled with a lot of struggle and, and trauma and yeah. that kind of stuff. So uh, I had to do a little bit of digging, but I'm going to talk about the history of ball culture. Nice. Yes, the category is. Okay, sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia, the Council of Fashion Designers, an article from them called Striking a Pose, A History of House Balls, the National Museum of American History, an article called Queens and Queers, The Rise of Drag Ball Culture in the 1920s, Rolling Stone Magazine, Strike a Pose, A Brief History of Ball Culture, TrueTPittsburgh.com, and also HouseOfLuna.com. Okay, let's jump in. So drag, just so that we're on the same page, is sort of defined as the performance of masculinity, femininity, or other forms of gender expression. I'm actually going to kick this story off with a quote. And that quote is, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Uh, That was said by RuPaul. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So drag in this sense appeared in print as early as 1870. The origin of the term is a little unclear, but some some theories are that it has roots in 19th century theater slang. It's the long skirts of costumes dragging on the floor. Yeah. Um, or that it was based on the grand rags historically used for masquerade balls. Oh, okay. I'm also going to intersect this because this is somebody that you should go and research on your own because the story is fascinating. But a man by the name of William Dorsey Swan, he was born in 1858 and he was born into slavery. Mm. Swan was an American gay liberation activist and he is the first person in the U.S. to lead a queer resistance group. And he is the first known person to self-identify as a queen of drag. Mm. During the 1880s and 1890s, he organized a series of balls in 
Washington, D.C. Most of the people who attended these balls were formerly enslaved men who gathered to dance in their satin and silk dresses. These events were highly secretive, so invitations were like given out person to person in places like the YMCA. Also, just a little funny to me that the YMCA, which stands for the Young Male Christian Association, is that what yeah. it stands for? Has always been like, has always had a big old gay history, <laughs> like from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, like I said, Swan's life is a compelling story. And if you want to know more about him, you can check out the book, The House of Swan, Where Slaves Became Queens, written by Channing Joseph. And that book is due to come out this year, 2021. Oh, okay. So let's get into it. The history of drag. Okay. So men dressing as women, that drag has been seen kind of forever. It's mm. and, and all over you. It's, it showed up in traditional customs and rituals, like all over the world for centuries. You find right. it in folk plays, dances. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. During Elizabethan theater, all actors had to be male and female roles were played by young men in drag. I think, I think that's pretty well known, but if you didn't, there's a little tidbit. There's a little bit yeah. of theater trivia for you. During the reign of Charles II, that rule about women performing relaxed. And so women got to play female roles, but up to that point, it was, like, it was dudes. Yeah. There is a weird double standard about about cross-dressing in performance. In male-dominated societies, female characters mm -hmm. in drag is about the pressure of her dramatic predicament. So mm. Viola in Twelfth Night, right. um, that kind of stuff that it's like, oh, I'm, I'm in this situation where I have to dress as a man. Right. Male characters dressing as women is and was almost always played for laughs. Like the mm. idea of yeah. the idea of women in dressing as men is not anywhere near as quote unquote funny as the idea of men dressing in traditional female attire. Yeah. Ugh, this play. Uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged by Adam Long, Daniel Singer, and Jess Winfield. Three, mm -hmm. by everything that I can tell, three white dudes. This play is kind of a staple of college theater departments and community yeah, theaters because- a couple times. Mm -hmm, yeah. Because it's a small cast. It's three dudes. Mm -hmm. um, play centers around three characters, almost always played by men who go through all 37 plays of William Shakespeare in 97 minutes. Right. Full disclosure. Duke City Rep, I think like we had like, we, like, we talked about it. Like it came up at a meeting of like, should we do it? It's a small cast. It's yeah. funny. But I mean, could... I remember when I've seen it, I remember enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, it's I like I saw it in college and it's funny, but this is the problem. Duke City Rep has always been a, a female heavy company because I started it and that's my fucking prerogative. Uh, yeah. So it's important. I, I, we have done, I think we've done some all female shows i don't think we've ever no. done an all-male show i don't, I don't think, think in the history of our theater company we've ever done an all-male show so we weren't really looking to do that but the problem with this play is that like all of the comedy relies on the joke of seeing dudes dressed as women yeah yeah i mean i don't think that's something i thought about at the time when i saw it but looking back that is absolutely true whether or not it's intentionally designed to do so or not the, like the comedy aspect of it which is you know how the play is built it's a comedy it's a laugh riot it's you know it's mm -hmm. a knee slapper it doesn't really work if you switch up the gender expression of the cast 
Yeah. Well, because I mean, it is, it's playing into that trope of like dude wearing a dress. Ha ha ha. Funny. Like so you know, funny. The some like it hot thing, you know? Yes. Precisely. Bosom buddies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I like that you said bosom buddy. <laughs> bosom buddies. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's that. Um, also strange, straight cisgendered men in drag has always been acceptable because it's always been like, oh, this is so funny. What a funny, right. like, you know, what a funny joke. And I'll, t- I'll get back on, I'll, I'll come back to this a little bit later. But outside of that very narrow classification of straight cisgendered dudes, drag becomes much more threatening. Well, I mean, just a little autobiographical aside here. I remember mm-hmm. when I was a kid, my grandparents, they lived at this uh, up in Colorado at this like trailer park. It was like it was like a retiree's kind of trailer park uh, mm-hmm. near Biocito Lake. Everyone who lived there was retired. It was just, just kind of a homey community. And every year they would do a drag show and all of the men of this community would get up and do this like drag fashion show. And mm-hmm. it was all these like, old men and i remember my grandfather doing it and like everyone's laughing and it's such a joke but like my grandpa was like ultra conservative southern baptist like yeah and so like you said like he was able to get away with it because no part of his masculinity was in question by anyone. right you know so right. so it could be a quote joke yeah and, it's yeah it's weird it's weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got we've got drag in theater, we've got, you know, this kind of stuff happening, but where else was drag being done? So, known throughout history as gay <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm such a fucking 7-year-old. Known no. throughout history as gay balls, cross-dressing balls. <laughs> well, apparently I'm 7 too. So. <laughs> We're adults. We're adult professionals. Okay. Mm -hmm. So known throughout history as gay balls, cross-dressing balls, and drag balls. Um, When we think of the ballroom scene, if if you know anything about the ballroom scene, it's usually the ballroom scene that's portrayed in documentaries like Paris is Burning or shows like Pose that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the ballroom scene in New York that originated in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s and had like significant cultural impact during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then sort of exploded into pop cultural awareness with Madonna's Vogue. Yeah. Drag balls actually have like this centuries long history that spanned the Western world. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say spanned the Western world because I couldn't find anything about this type of stuff happening in the Eastern world. That does not mean that it wasn't happening. It just didn't come across in my research. Okay. Um, So for the sake of this, I'm mostly talking about the Western world. Okay. In the late 1600s, gay subculture has been documented throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. Like they were talking about like where the cruising spots were, where, where men would go to pick up other men. They were talking about gay bars, parties, slang that was, you know, kind of coming into the pop culture lexicon, drag, people dressing in drag, and these balls. There's documentation of all of this stuff happening. Yeah. In the 1620s, during the Portuguese Inquisition, archives show records of the Baroque equivalent of drag balls taking place. Okay. In 1656 in Mexico City, His Majesty's High Court discovered that Juan Correa, a man in his 70s, was holding similar drag balls in his home on the outskirts of the city. Hmm. 
In Spain, cross-dressing was allowed, but only for carnival. Mm. That's it. But again, it's this weird thing of like, you can do it, but it like, there's a time and a place for it. And you can only do it if you're this and that and blah, blah, blah. Well, it can't be like a lifestyle. Correct. 100%. Yeah. I will additionally say here that all of the early stuff that I can, that I was able to find, there's almost no delineation between gay men in drag and people who were gender non-conforming, mm-hmm. trans, et cetera. Right. Yeah. They all kind of just get lumped together until we get closer to, to modern history. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So I can't speak any more clearly on what the actual like gender expression was. Yeah. Most of the time they're talking about it as if this is drag queens, if this is gay men in drag. Yeah. Cis gay men, I should say. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, so where did I leave that? Oh, um, okay. So in France, during Louis the Fourteenth, if I'm reading my Roman numerals correctly, I was going to say I could see you trying to do the like conversion in your head. It's it's X I V, so that's That's fourteenth, right? Okay, so (laughs) edit that out. Um, (laughs) No, I'm leaving that. (laughs) God damn it. Okay, so in France during Louis the Fourteenth's reign, cross dressing was actually like a must at Royal balls. Mm-hmm. Like it was it, like some dude had to show up in a dress for it to be considered like, you know, a successful ball London during the eighth, during the, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong? I'm having a stroke. Okay. <sighs> London during the late 1600s had a robe bust gay subculture with mm. molly houses which were basically gay bars they were gay pubs oh, okay. popping up all over the place this actually ended up being a huge scandal well there was it was called i think it's called the mother claps molly house scandal and that ha- like the scandal happened when it was found out that mother claps molly house was not just a molly house but was actually a gay brothel ah uh, okay yeah so it's like it's fine for you guys to get together and drink but what, that's what- what time period late 1600s oh okay yeah Yeah. that's pretty early okay yeah despite laws forbidding homosexuality underground drag balls could be found throughout the 18th and 19th century in european cities like berlin paris leeds nottingham london madrid and barcelona all of those make sense to me except leeds and nottingham (laughs) i was gonna say you seemed very surprised well berlin paris london madrid they're big cities you know what i mean i don't know a lot about Leeds and Nottingham. I don't think they're big cities, but they had I a mean, robust gay subculture. I'm, I'm going to piss off all of Britain here, but like, I think that Leeds is sort of like the UK equivalent of like Indianapolis or something. Like, okay. <laughs> that kind of mid sized, sort of rust belty type city. That, yeah. So that, yeah. and again, in like the 17 and 1800s, it's just that was surprising to me. Yeah. The 1880s see the expansion of cross dressing balls to the Americas. This is again when William Swan, is that his name? I want to get it right. Yes. When William Dorsey Swan is like starting to do his stuff in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. it's also when the Western frontier was being explored. And so you had these towns that were mostly made up of dudes, you know, they were cowboys and miners, loggers, railroad workers, all that kind of stuff. So there's like not a lot of chicks around. Yeah. Um, And these men would go on to form these like really, really deep friendships and possibly even more intimate bonds with other men. Interesting. It is unclear. That, I want to see that movie, by the way, like the Western that's about that. 
Right, right. Also, I mean, just sidebar, one of my favorite parts of the Netflix series, Godless, that kind of does the reverse, has a storyline that does the reverse oh, of this. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a town of all women and, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. A big question about these these like cross-dressing balls that were happening on the Western frontier is whether or not this happened because there were no women around or if that lifestyle attracted men who were attracted to other men. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's probably an unanswerable question, but yeah, but it's I, like, like, were they choosing to go to these spaces where they knew they there wasn't going to be well, like, a lot of opportunities for them to have to hide? Yeah. Well, you don't have all the societal pressure that like you would have in like New York and right. you don't have a lot of like prying eyes looking at you and worrying about what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Or was it just that like guys would look to their own devices? I mean, I would be like, uh, I'm fine. You know, like, I'm, yeah, let's do I this. I mean, just a general statement, not about like sex and sexuality, but I do think there's something unique about men. If we are by ourselves too long, we do kind of like things just get a little wiggy around the edges, you know? So like, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, I sort of like this theory that there was something attractive about these communities, you yeah. know, for people who couldn't live their lives openly in like yeah. a place like New York. Right. Like, Like, was the pressure to marry and start a family? Yeah, it was like a very defined social Too strong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. During the gold rush, San Francisco, which this, I'm also like, is this why San Francisco became such a like gay mecca? Because it was, it started like during the gold rush. But during the gold rush, San Francisco became this like amusement park town where gold miners would go to like blow off steam. And again, we're talking about a place where there is no women and like even fewer prejudices. So the whole place was just like dudes having a grand old time with other dudes. Just kind of an open city. Yeah. Yeah. At these dances, these like cross-dressing balls. And that's like, actually, that's what they were. They would get together. It was, it was a ball. Yeah. But it was all just dudes at these dances, men who would take the quote unquote, like female role, either tied handkerchiefs around their arms to signify that they, you know, like you could lead in the dance Mm -hmm. or, or they dressed in full drag. Mm. Like it's interesting. Yeah. This is just fascinating to me that they were like, fuck it. Like, let's do a thing. (laughs) And this wasn't actually just in the West. The military, since women weren't allowed in the military, also had an abundance of stag dances with men dancing with other men. And I mean, this is, I believe, like all the way up through like World War II and stuff. Like it was just. That's actually, I mean, that's surprising. I'm, I'm assuming these weren't like sanctioned by the military. The military ones were, it was like, they're that's surprising to me. Like, I just, I just think of the military as being so hierarchical that I would think those social pressures we're talking about in cities would be almost like just amped up in the military, but I don't know. Yeah. And I, and that's, I mean, and that's another thing too, is that again, we're getting into, you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit. It is 100% true that there has been a lot of queer erasure throughout history that things that it's like these are clearly two people of the same gender who are like into each other but it's like they were very good friends i mean that's happened in my own family but yeah right the flip side to that too is that sometimes men form very close friendships with other men Mm -hmm. 
And so I think both of these things were taking place there. I think men were having friendships with other men that more closely mirrored the type of friendships that women have with each other. Mm, And there were men who were gay. I mean, it's just, it's just like, this is why I want to see this movie because it's such a juxtaposition to, or a contrast to our sort of mythical conception of the West. Right. Is this like lawless outlaw, everyone's shooting everybody. Yeah. And they were, but also like then they like having dances. Maybe like the positive side of lawlessness, you know? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. lawlessness also can equal freedom. One hundred percent. I I mean I want to see this movie. I want all right. I might have to like get on this and write it. Yeah, I'm like, you're the writer. I don't know why you're telling me like I can do anything about it. Um, <laughs> I can't even be in the damn thing. Okay. Mexico's Dance of the 41. Uh, on November 18th, 1901, police raided a private home and found 41 men, 22 dressed as men, 19 dressed as women, having a grand old time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was considered Mexico's biggest scandal, like mm. up, like at the end up to the time. Oh, wow. The Mexican government tried really, really hard to stifle the story because the majority of the people who were at the party were Mexico's like upper echelon, yeah. like high society. It didn't work. Um, (laughs) those things never work yeah this is from a a press report of the time quote on sunday night at a house on the fourth block of calle la paz the police burst into a dance attended by 41 unaccompanied men wearing women's clothing among those individuals were some of the dandies seen every day on calle plateros they were wearing elegant ladies dresses wigs false breasts earrings embroidered slippers and their faces were painted with highlighted eyes and rosy cheeks Mm. when the news reached the street all forms of comments were made and the behavior of those individuals was subjected to censure. We refrain from giving our readers further details because they are exceedingly disgusting. Even though the raid was illegal and like absolutely arbitrary, like the police really kind of fell ass over tea kettle into this. Mm -hmm. The 41 men were arrested. They were forced to join the military that was then fighting the Mayan people in Yucatan. Mm. It is said that there were actually 42 men caught the night of November 17th, but that the 42nd man was none other than Ignacio de la Torre, son-in-law of Mexican president Porfirio Diaz. Ooh. Yep. Yeah. The list of names was never revealed. Mm, yeah. Just so over the, two. The story got out, but they were able to stifle the, I am actually kind of glad because like just at the time period, like this would have just been public shaming for these men. Well, and it was like they were they were like taken into the square. They were beaten. Uh, the men who were in drag were forced to like sweep the streets in drag Ugh. and all that stuff. But the list of names was never revealed. And that yeah. I think that lends to the legend that like there was actually 42 men there. Yeah. Just over two weeks later, like literally like 17 days later, a similar raid took place against uh, a group of lesbians in Santa Maria, but it mm. drew considerably less attention. That's also an interesting thing. Like I am, I am in no way trying to say that queer women have not faced, you know, violence and, and prejudice and all of those things. And, and it's different. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know how much this plays into this story, but there's going back to our friends discussion at the beginning, like it, it is so fascinating watching just the dichotomy between the like gay male panic on the show. 
Right. And then just the fetishization of the idea of lesbians. Like how many times is Joey trying to convince Monica and Rachel to make out? You know? Right. And like, I think that's, I think, I think there are a couple of things at play here. I think one, the idea of lesbians is, is titillating yeah. to dudes, of course. And also I think it's a harder, two grown women sleeping in a bed isn't seen as weird, right. you know, in heavy air quotes as two grown men sleeping in a bed. Well, and it, it's together. like female affection 100%. is like much more accepted by these societies like the male affections like right and there's not the same type of weird you know like i have changed with other women like i i mean you know i'm an actor i've been in dressing rooms mm-hmm. where where women <laughs> i'm just remembering this i was in a dressing room and uh i won't name any names but some uh, another another woman in the cast took off her top and her bra and another woman in the cast saw her boobs and was like good for you <laughs> like you've got a great rack good for you but that kind of talk is yeah like, like d- you know dudes, nobody was like why are you looking at me or yeah you dudes know. don't do that i mean if you go to a locker room with dudes you're doing everything you can not to look at what you right. know the dude not next to, see to you somebody's has. Yeah, not to see somebody's yeah. bits. Yeah. Netflix just released a movie called Dance of the 41 that's a dramatized retelling of mm. this story. I watched it the other day. Go and check it out. It's, you know, again, like just, you know, look outside of the US for some content. Yeah, that, I'm going to have to watch that. That's Yeah, it's a Mexican made movie. It's great. It's really great. Um, It's lovely. Let's move on to the rest of the world at the turn of the century. Argentina and Uruguay. There are some sources, I can't find this everywhere, but there are some sources that say that the tango, a dance that originated in the lower class districts of both Buenos Aires and Montevideo, was originally a dance that was meant to be danced between two men. Interesting. Mm -hmm. This is a quote. The society that begins to dance tango was mainly male, and thus, in public, it was danced by two men only, as the Catholic Church applied its morals and did not allow the union of a man and a woman in this type of dance. Hmm. Pope, mm -hmm, Pope Pius X banished it. The Kaiser outlawed it to his officers. And that quote is from a book called El tango nació para ser bailado, which is the tango was born to be danced uh, Mm. or created to be danced or meant to be danced. Uh, And the author is Juliana Hernandez Berrio. Okay. Which is, I mean, also because, I mean, I think when you think of the tango, I don't know if there is a dance that is more sexual. Yeah. I can't think of one. (laughs) Of like the, you know, like the ballroom dances, then tango. And it's fascinating to me that it was like it's indecent for two women to dance that together so two men are going to dance it together yeah Yeah, i I don't know yeah uh brazil homosexuality was legalized in brazil in 1830 but the country the country controlled its queer population by enforcing strict laws against public indecency Mm. vagrancy cross-dressing and quote-unquote libertine behaviors so you can be gay but only the way we say it's okay to be gay. you like you can be gay but you can't but you can't go out and be gay i guess like yeah. you can be gay in your house by yourself right <laughs> but that's it um Having said that, though, once a year, social mores were relaxed and Brazil's queer population could dress in drag. Men could dance with men. Women could dance with women. Again, during Carnival. 
Yeah. I don't know what it is about Carnival that it's like all bets are off, take off your clothes, do whatever and, you want, but it's Carnival. And I'm not, I'm not a, like, I don't know much of this history, but Carnival is the basis for Mardi Gras, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, to my understanding, Mardi Gras is the sort of Cajun Creole version of Carnival. Okay. Yeah. That's what yeah. Yeah, it all I'm thinking like it all has to do with Lent and I don't know some yeah. shit, some Catholic stuff that I don't know enough about. Sorry, mom. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm saying sorry. She's like, she doesn't care. Um okay, Russia's gay balls, which this was I don't again, I I don't mean to be this ignorant, but like this was super surprising to me. Um, okay, let me there, this is a big word, so let me let me just prepare myself. Bali. Zenonenavistnokov. That's what Russia's gay balls were called. And it okay. apparently literally translates to ball of the woman haters. Oh, uh, right. yep. that I'd like to unpack that. <laughs> yep. And that's like, there was a whole thing about the woman haters and like, you know, capitalized and all that's like, you know, hmm. the, the title was capitalized. It was for whatever reason. I don't know if it was all gay men in Russia, but this specific or the specific group, but they called themselves the woman haters. Hmm. Um, those were taking place in Moscow and beyond pre-World War One. The majority of drag balls that were taking place around the world were mostly for men, but there were some drag balls and stuff like that happening for, for women, for lesbians. They're just, from, from what I could see, they are significantly less documented than the gay ones, than the yeah. gay balls. So these balls happened in Europe, you know, all of these things that I've said through World War Two and up through the 1970s. So let's talk about drag balls in the U.S. Um, So we've got the stag balls happening in the U.S. throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. In the 1920s, the U.S. sees drag balls become these like huge society events for gay men and women. Mm. It's during this time that a competitive element kind of makes its way into the balls with prizes being given for like best costumes, stuff Mm. like that. These prizes almost obviously exclusively went to men. In New York City, the balls required a permit and they were held at big venues like Webster Hall, the original Madison Square Garden, Astor Hotel, Savoy Ballroom. Like these were, these were giant events. Yeah. They, they weren't things that were taking place, you know, in secret. They were major balls. It's like moved out of the underground. One, yes. Yeah. The biggest ball in the city was the masquerade ball in Harlem. It also goes by some other names, but they're kind of, they're kind of slurs. So I'm not going to repeat them here. You yeah. can go and look them up. So the masquerade ball in Harlem was uh, held every two years starting around 1896 to 1899. It's it's unclear. I saw okay. like literally like the first masquerade ball. I saw several sources that said 96, 97, 98, 99. Yeah. Guys, I look, I'm not a researcher. I need <laughs> my sources to do better. Um, <laughs> so there we go. It was organized by the Grand United Order of Odd Fellows, and that was a fraternal order of black men that were not allowed to join other fraternal orders at the time because mm. they were black. Yeah. Okay. The masquerade brawl drew huge crowds, massive crowds. An article from the black newspaper, the New York Freeman called the ball, the event of the season in mm. 1929, 2000 people were turned away. Wow. In 1936, the event had over 8,000 attendees. Again, this is 8,000, like... This isn't all, like, gay men. Like, this is, like, it's crossed over into 
it sounds like it's crossed over into straight culture if that many people are showing up. A little bit. Okay. Uh, Kind of. I'll get to that in a sec. In 1932, the Afro-American newspaper, that is the title of the newspaper or the name of the newspaper, Mm Afro-American newspaper, wrote, quote, our members of the third sex are showing a keenness for blonde wigs. Mm. Which I just like, it's nice to see that, you know, as much as we think that everything is so antiquated and that everything was so, you know, buttoned up and puritanical and stuff that in the 1930s, they were talking about gender outside of the binary. Yeah. Um, and that they had a keenness for blonde wigs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like that, a keenness. Like, yeah. And it's, it you know, so again, nice. I know it does. It sounds so, I can just, it's like a lot of finger waves. Like I can picture it in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just a nice reminder that, you know, our trans gender, non-conforming, non-binary like siblings have always been here. Um, yeah. I think sometimes when we start talking about this kind of stuff, there are people who can feel like, oh, nowadays. And I'm like, they've always been there. Like, always. Right. They were hiding in order to survive. Right. So this isn't like a new thing. Um, the Masquerade Ball was an integrated event, but racial and class divisions it, within the event were still present. In his book, Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Making of the Gay Male World, author George Chauncey says, quote, middle class men passing as straight sat in the balcony with other members of Harlem's social elite looking down on the spectacle of working men in drag. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think this is where it starts to be a little like, well, who, like who, who all is attending these balls? Were they straight or were they like straight passing people? Right. Okay. But having said all this, it was still like one of the few places where black and white people could mingle in the same space and where queer people could, you know, like find intimacy, love possibly, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. The event created like this one day where queer people, specifically trans or gender non-conforming folks could freely be themselves without fear. Like I mentioned before, prizes were given for the most beautiful gowns, which took months to build. Like people would build, like spend, I mean, I'm repeating myself, but spend months building these like elaborate, gorgeous gowns. Prizes were also given for, this is a quote, the most perfect feminine body displayed by an impersonator. As you can tell, this is the direct ancestor of ball culture. Yeah. So now we're getting into ball culture. During the 1960s, cross-dressing balls started to evolve into what is now known as the ballroom community or ball culture Mm -hmm. in Harlem and in Washington, D.C. Michael Cunningham, in what I think was an article titled The Slap of Love, said, Black men in Harlem took the balls to new heights undreamed of by the little gangs of white men parading around in frocks in basement taverns. In a burst of liberated zeal, they rented big places like the Elks Lodge on 160 West 129th Street, and they turned up in dresses Madame Pompadour herself might have thought twice about. Mm. Word spread around Harlem that a retinue of drag queens was putting together outfits bigger and grander than Rose Parade floats. And the balls began to attract spectators, first by the dozens and then by the hundreds, gay and straight alike. Mm -hmm. People brought liquor with them, sandwiches, buckets of chicken. As the audience grew, the queens gave them more and more for their money. Cleopatra on her barge, all in gold lame with a half dozen attendants waving white glittering palm fronds, faux fashion models and feathered coats lined with mylar so that when the coat was thrown open and a 2000 watt incandescent lamp suddenly lit, the people in the first few rows were blinded for minutes afterward. Mm. So like, we're really starting to get into like the pageantry. Right. The theatricality. Yeah. And the decades before, while black folks were a part of the balls, 
it was understood that the goal was to look like white women. Mm -hmm. So if you were dressing in drag, like you were putting on makeup, you were using skin lightening creams, the goal was to look like white women. But as racial tensions increased throughout the country, it became clear that black and Latinx folks would need to seek out their own spaces. Yeah. Thus, houses were created. So houses or families were created as like alternative families, again, mostly made up of black and Latinx LGBT individuals to provide shelter, solace, and safety for those who had been kicked out of their original homes due to Mm -hmm. homo and transphobia. Mm -hmm. Because many of the people who'd been kicked out of their bio families' homes at like a young age, if you watch the documentary Paris is Burning, they interviewed Mm -hmm. two kids who were 13 and 15. And I mean, they look like babies they look like babies and they're you know out there in the scene um that's a great documentary by the way i saw that in film school i don't remember what class but it was one of those just like kind of mind-blowing experiences yeah yeah it's it's gotten some criticism um Mm -hmm. Because the woman who created it is, she's not a woman of color. Mm. And so it felt like it was, there are people who, their criticism is, is that it is still looking into the scene through the lens of whiteness. I Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that because I I don't know for sure if that's true, but that's what the criticism is. So it's sort of like there may be an element of exploitation there. I think that's what they feel. Um, It's also like, I think some of the people in the movie were mad that they didn't get paid. Although the filmmaker, Jenny something, I'm not remembering what her name is, but um, she was like, we paid like the main people who Mm -hmm. were in the movie, but also this was a documentary and that's not really like how documentaries work. Yeah, I was going to say. Okay. So again, we're talking about a lot of young people who've been put out on the streets because they've been kicked out of their homes. And so because these are young people who literally like, I can't imagine this. It's just not like within my wheelhouse, but these are like, you know, again, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kids who get Mm -hmm. thrown out onto the street with nothing and either from around the area or are able to make their way to New York city or Washington DC with nothing. And because of that, they turn to sex work to survive Mm -hmm. because of this and the AIDS epidemic that went ignored by mainstream America for years, the ball community was obviously decimated by both violence and and illness and these these houses like this this is kind of the basis of that show pose right 100 it's all about yeah. yeah like the it's like it's set in the ball scene like i said starting in the mid to late 80s and going through the late 90s but it's really the stories about these like chosen found families yeah i mean, i haven't sat down and really watched the show but i did love watch it. a few episodes with you so i, I love it i love it it was show. really good Yeah. Yeah. It's great. (sighs) Okay. So houses are usually led by a charismatic leader who goes by the title of either mother or father. Mm -hmm. Mothers and fathers are usually older members. What the fuck? I wrote older memes. (laughs) (laughs) Older members of the queer community and typically were drag queens, gay men, or trans women. Okay. Uh, Mothers and fathers provided guidance and support. They really like, they taught the younger generations how to, how to survive how to stay Mm -hmm. safe, like I said, provided shelter and a home, all of that stuff. 
Marcel Christian Labeja is said to have started the first black drag ball in 1962. And this is also credited as being the start of houses. Okay. Some houses of note include the house of Corey. That's Dorian Corey, who plays a big, plays a big part in Paris's burning. She also has a, a grim story. Oh, I think I know. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The House of Dior, House of Wong, House of Dupree, House of Extravaganza, House of Ninja. The House of Ninja was started by Willie Ninja, and he is considered to be the grandfather of Vogue. Mm. And the House of Ebony. In 1981, Paris Dupree of the House of Dupree throws the first Paris's Burning Ball and is credited by some as being the first time, like the Paris's Burning Ball is credited by some as being the first time that categories took precedence at the balls. Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit more about categories in the competition right now. So previously prizes at the balls had been handed out for, like I said, best gown, most perfect feminine body by an impersonator. The judges were almost always white, but these houses and balls were now made up almost entirely of black and Latinx people. Mm-hmm. So this space was for and by them. The yeah. creation of houses also saw the formalization of competition between the houses in the form of categories that were walked at the balls. So this means a panel of judges scores participants on things like Vogue skills, costumes, appearance, and attitude. I'm going to give a quick word about voguing here. For those who don't know, (laughs) Vogue is a highly stylized modern house dance, and it's inspired by Egyptian hieroglyphs and the poses struck by the supermodels on the pages of Vogue magazine. There's Mm. a story that Paris Dupree created Vogue when he was like flipping through a magazine and then like started just popping little poses poses to the beat to the music. And they were like, boom, there's a ton of stories about the origin of Vogue. It's kind of all over the place. Yeah. But that is one story. Voguing is a nonviolent way of fighting during the balls. Mm. Again, like if you can watch actual voguing, like when they start to get down on the ground, because there's no touching in Vogue. And so it's so almost it's things- like, a, like, like, a, like a rap battle kind of. Yeah. But in movement, it's yeah. it, like, there are people who liken it to things like capoeira. Oh yeah. 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 Where it is like movement, but without contact and a right. lot of like close calls and that kind of stuff, but no actual physical contact. Interesting. It was a staple of ball culture. And it hit the mainstream when Madonna released her song Vogue in March of story about that is that she was introduced to voguing by Jose Gutierrez Extravaganza and Luis Camacho Extravaganza at New York's Sound Factory Dance Club. And then, of course, she was like, this is great and yoinked it. Yeah. And now we, you know, then everybody knew what the fuck Vogue was. Right. So 
Back to the categories and and the competition. Those walking the balls were expected to dress for the category and display realness. uh, And that means the ability to blend in with cis hetero folks. Mm -hmm. Categories include, but are not limited to butch queen realness, femme queen realness, Mm. runway, bizarre, labels, that's to, you know, to walk in fashion labels, uh, Mm -hmm. face, Vogue, best dressed, body, sex, siren, and more. Mm. Um, there are also subcategories for all of these in which virgin, that's first timers, beginners, and legendary slash icon walkers can compete with others at their level of experience. Okay. So you're not going to be competing. You're not going to do a virgin walk and be competing with like somebody who's at icon status. So that's, right. just, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, everybody's managing expectations. Ball culture, as you can probably tell, is deeply rooted in necessity and defiance. Like I said, Mm -hmm. these were spaces that were created for and by these people. Walking the categories allowed participants to show themselves as they saw themselves and to occupy spaces, however briefly, that were inaccessible to them. At a time when homophobia and racism were rampant, and while the trans community was experiencing transphobia and racism from within the gay community itself, Mm -hmm. the balls were a space where they could freely and openly be themselves. So perhaps, as as a couple of examples, perhaps a queer or trans person of color couldn't infiltrate Wall Street, but they could walk business wear realness at a ball. And maybe a young Latinx femme queen couldn't dream of going to prep school, but she could walk the ball in her finest Ralph Lauren outfit. Mm, Okay. And it like, there is in a lot of the articles I wrote, I think it comes up in Paris is burning. They talk about that, how it was like they were practicing. They were practicing for when those spaces would be available to them. Right. And, you know, you can say whatever you want about realness and how that is trying to fit into like a predetermined mold and kind of like playing into some not great attitudes about stuff, but that's, but it's that's also, what they were doing. I mean, it, it, it's subverting those attitudes. 100%. Yeah, yeah. 100%. If you're tempted to be judgy about that, just like check yourself. Just, I mean, pump, I, you know, pump the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like resist. Uh, and that's, that's a tough thing for Scotty and I to say, because I, we are some judgy bitches, but <laughs> in terms of this, just press pause. Yeah. Yeah. There is no doubt in my mind that ball culture and the houses of ball culture saved countless lives. Oh yeah. Because at the end of the day, one, it's giving actual shelter to, uh, you know, to, to queer and trans youth who had nowhere else to go. Yeah. Otherwise they'd be on the street. Mm -hmm. And you know, like we all just want to be seen as our truest selves. Like that's all, that's all anybody wants. I'm going to end this story with a quote from Magnus Hirschfeld's 1904 book. Okay. Again, we've got a German title here. So I'm going to do my best. Berlin's Drittes Geschlecht, which I believe translates to Berlin's third gender. Mm. Um, He's talking about, he's actually talking about a lesbian ball and he's talking about, you know, he's, he's going through how the whole evening goes and everything, but he ends the passage with this. No discordant note tarnishes the general happiness until the last participants leave the place in the dull crepuscular lights of a cold February morning, where for a few hours they could dream themselves as that what they are inside amongst those that share their feelings. And that is the history of ball culture. Happy Pride, everyone. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Uh, I want to go watch Pose now. 
Yeah, another. Yeah, maybe I'll stop oh. watching Friends for a minute. And <laughs> yeah, Friends will watch. be there. <laughs> Friends will be there. Uh, yeah. Seasons one and two of Pose are available on Netflix, so you can okay. find them there. Also, another documentary that came up a lot. I have not had the chance to watch it, but another documentary that came up a lot is a 2000, I believe, 16 documentary called Kiki. Mm. K-I-K-I for anybody who's not familiar with the term Kiki. That I think is uh, has been sort of dubbed the Paris is burning of our generation okay. of like this generation. Okay. Uh, so I think it's a bit more, it maybe was like a bit more responsibly yeah. made. Well, with maybe just more, I don't know, modern awareness. Right. And I think may have been made by people from within the community. Right. Yeah. So go check out Kiki, go check out Paris is burning, go check out Pose, do all of those things. I will say that Paris is burning does have does have some pretty hard stuff in yeah. it. Um it yeah, so just be aware of that. I'm going to say for our like straight friends, absolutely go watch Paris is Burning. For any of our queer, trans, gay, all of the people of the LGBTQIA plus folks, if you're not in a space where you can hear some of this stuff right now because it does deal with violence, don't do that to yourself. Go and watch something happy. Yeah. Yay. So yeah, everybody, happy pride. Thanks happy for listening. Pride. Stay metal like Rob Halford. Stay metal, stay <laughs> fabulous, stay weird stay curious and we'll see you guys next week bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing <laughs>